Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 128th episode, our returning guest is Sarah Kenzier. You first heard Sarah on episodes 70, 80, 89, 99, and 112. Sarah is best known for her reporting on St. Louis, her coverage of the 2016 election, and her academic research on authoritarian states. She is currently an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her reporting has been featured in many publications including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, Fast Company, The Chicago Tribune, Teen Vogue, and The New York Times. Her new book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, was published April 17th and is now a New York Times bestseller. You can listen to her podcast, which she co-hosts with Andrea Chalupa, Gaslit Nation. And now on to the show. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, no problem. Cool. Yeah. And uh, congratulations on your podcast. I have uh, been listening, uh, but I listened a little bit at first and then the midterms came up and I got so nervous I couldn't listen. And then I had to wait to see how it turned out. And now I've been going back with the knowledge that, you know, it turned out the way it turned out and I'm, I'm able to listen to it now. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're probably the most upbeat episodes, especially my co-host Andrea, who's in New York, which, you know, when all blue I had a, a different perspective in Missouri, but you know, it's a good balance. Oh, yeah. I was going to actually just say that because you guys, especially on those two that were afterwards, she, she, with good reason, she's very uh, upbeat and chipper about it. And like you, uh, I live yeah, I live in a red state, a uh, very red state now. Uh, super majorities in both houses of, you know, the state house and trifecta and uh, seven to nine congressional districts are Republican in Indiana. And Joe Donnelly lost to Mike Braun and, you know... It was just, a, it was not good for, you know. Very similar, I think, too. And it, it, I mean, at least here, I don't feel like it represents what I see kind of on the ground. And it actually didn't even show up as representative in the election itself because all these progressive ballot initiatives passed, yet they voted for Republicans that would overturn them. So there's a bit of a discrepancy uh, and some uh, confusing factors in our election, but yeah, it's definitely frustrating, and when that's your day-to-day life, you know, it shapes your life, your children's life, your family's life. It's a different experience than kind of just crunching numbers, which is, I think, how a lot of people handle these elections. But. Yeah, and, you know, we just saw that voter suppression pays off, apparently, uh, you know, just basically warping the vote at every every chance. In Indiana, we had almost half a million people kicked off the voter rolls because they didn't uh, respond to a postcard that was sent in the mail, and then you had you were just off if you didn't, you know what I mean? So that's, whoop, those are people are gone, and obviously those people aren't going to vote Republican uh, because they have f- fixed addresses and, you know what I mean, all the rest, but yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very frustrating, and it's, you know, the kind of thing I was well, I was worrying about it before the 2016 election, uh, but certainly after, because it's obvious that the Republican Party wanted a one-party state, and that would be a tool that they would use to do it. And I don't know. I feel like um, you know, there are certainly groups that were very much on top of it, like the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center, but you know, whole uh, outlets, including like Vox, the New York Times, would write these whole articles about how voter suppression did not exist. Not voter fraud, not like Trump's nonsense, but... You know, voter suppression, the repeal of the VRA had had no effect, and this wasn't a real thing that was happening. It was a wild liberal conspiracy theory, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, if this is the dominant narrative, 
about this problem. It's going to take forever to get people to the point to take it seriously enough to try to resolve it. And I do think that that, you know, that played a factor. Um, I don't think anyone doubts it now, especially after it happened in Georgia. But, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you need to handle early and not, you know, uh, in retrospect. So. Yeah. I, did, did the U.N. send election watchers to Georgia and Florida? Because they should have. That was some third world stuff that was happening there. Yeah, I actually don't know, and I'm curious whether the OSCE sent people, um, because, you know, they often do that anyway, even if it's not viewed as a particularly uh, dangerous election. But I would have appreciated that. <laughs> I would have welcomed that. You know, it's certainly different than, I remember in uh, 2016, Russia tried to send unilateral monitors, you know, not part of the kind of international <laughs> body, but just regular old Russians to kind of take a look at the equipment and see what's going on. And, you know, and they were shot down by, I think, Louisiana and uh, Texas and some other states. But that was one of those moments where I was like, you know, a lot of things were adding up about Russia's role in the Trump campaign. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, is anyone going to look into this? And, you know, mm. yeah, <laughs> yet another thing. It's a theme. Yeah. But there was a voting machine in northern Indiana here where the person, they took a video of it. They, they touched the Democrat four times and it switched it to the Republican every time. And on the fifth time, it finally did it right. And they were tapping in exactly the same place. Oh, yeah. That, I hadn't heard about that. I heard about that in Texas. Federal um, mm-hmm. uh, Ted Cruz, the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll send you. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link. It was the British newspaper, The Independent, published it, and I believe it was also on Reddit. But it was somebody that was just a congressional district. It was uh, Toby Beck and Jim Baird, and I believe it was the fourth district of Indiana congressional district. Um, yeah. But look it up anyway. That's. Disturbing. Very disturbing. And, you know, they say that the machines are never connected to the Internet. They say this and that. But I didn't get a paper receipt when I voted uh, on one of these machines, when I voted this time. Uh, you know, not even a receipt that you take to somewhere else and have it count. It was just like, push the button to vote. And it's like, okay, does anything have to happen? <laughs> no, apparently not. Yeah, just sorry. <laughs> I was left, you know, I had to ask a poll worker, like, is this definitely done? Because I, I didn't get the sense that it had happened. They're like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And I'm like, okay. But, I mean, I, I wonder. And, you know, on Gaslit Nation, we interviewed a um, computer scientist at MIT who specializes in election equipment and election integrity, who says that we've basically been in trouble in this area since 2000, and she's been sort of shouting into the void that uh, we need to change things. This is Barbara Simons. And so anyone who's interested in that, it's the fourth episode of our show. We did a long interview with her about all the things that need to change, and she kind of felt like um, the technological changes that needed to be made couldn't be made in time for 2018 anyway, uh, but could for 2020. Um, So assuming there's a uh, chance to tell of that happening, we should probably get on it. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but back to your podcast, uh, I think one thing that is absolutely hilarious to me is when you read the ads, because you have the Casper mattress ad, and I was like, I almost had to pull the car over. I was laughing so much because it's like, is authoritarianism getting you down? Is it making you sleepy? Well, get yourself a Casper mattress. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, and that's one of the most like on-brand creative ways to, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like... <laughs> 
authoritarianism. And you know what? I am both of those things. I'm very tired, and I don't like authoritarianism. It's it's two things about me. Honestly, if you're going to send a new mattress my way, which they, they have not yet, I, I will happily take it. That was a from-the-heart endorsement. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, here in Indiana, you know, I know there's voter suppression, but there is a strong contingent, and we can't say it's all, you know, voter suppression and perversion. And there is a large contingent of people that we live among who apparently just think the last two years have just been A-OK. And I just, even though Trump's name wasn't on the ballot, he told them to vote like it was. And, you know, I believe that they did. And, you know, they came out and rewarded him for everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, I see and I hear mixed things in Missouri. I thought it was interesting that Trump kept coming here just over and over again. And, like, when he wasn't in Missouri in the last month, he was in western Illinois, which was basically just an attempt to, you know, to hit Illinois and hit Missouri simultaneously. I think they were worried about McCaskill, um, but he also knew that he did have, you know, a hardcore base, particularly in southern Missouri. But occasionally, you know, over the last year, I've talked to people who voted for Trump uh, who were never that enthusiastic about him to begin with, um, but they regret the vote. They, you know, don't like the Democrats either. They're often, you know, very much against them as well. But, you know, they feel like, you know, he's a nut job. You know, like, that's the main thing I hear. It's not only about a policy position. It's like, he's crazy. He's a sociopath. He's on Twitter night and day. He's an embarrassment. Um, you know, occasionally there's some acknowledgement of what he's doing with our military, uh, the disrespect of the troops. But these conversations only happen when people don't know that I'm a journalist, when it's just some sort of random situation where I happen to be, you know, chatting with strangers. As soon as they find out what I do for a living, it's like, forget it. Like, no one wants to, <laughs> to talk about this with me at all, because they feel like they're going to be misrepresented by me, that there's going to be their names in a paper, and then, you know, somehow Hillary Clinton will be installed in the White House as some, you know, result of a perception that there's now a mandate against Trump. Like, there's a lot of weird kind of, I don't know, people keeping sentiment to themselves both ways, both the Trump extremists and also, like, the Trump skeptics. So I don't hmm. really know what the hell um, folks are thinking and what they really want out of things. That's why I sometimes think the ballot amendments are more interesting to look at because it's issue by issue, so you do get a sense of consensus, whereas if it's about a personality, like a cult grows around it, and you either are reacting to that or embracing it, and it's kind of hard to make sense of, uh, like, a shared reality. Mm -hmm. Well, and then look at, like, Michigan that just legalized recreational marijuana when they also voted for Trump, who installed Jeff Sessions. Goodbye, Jeff Sessions. Bye, Jeff Sessions. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um. <laughs> we voted for, this, this election, we voted for campaign finance reform, raising the minimum wage, medical marijuana, mm. and protection of labor unions. And then voted for Josh Hawley, uh, you know, an extreme right-winger backed by the NRA and Trump as the senator. Like, it makes just no sense. Like, he will strike down all of those things. So it's, uh, you know, I also wonder about propaganda. I wonder what people are hearing because the ads made it sound like, you know, Claire McCaskill was, like, heading some sort of bomb-throwing radical leftist <laughs> funded Antifa revolution. And you're just kind of like, yeah, okay, Claire McCaskill. But, I mean, people are, you know, some people, I think, really believed this. And they really thought, you know, Holly's like this good guy, and he's here to protect your health care, and he's here to do you know, all these things, but he's, he's going to do the opposite of. And so 
I don't know. I mean, if you get all your news from Fox and Rush Limbaugh, like, mm. you are going to just hear a totally alternate reality. Right. It sounds very appealing. And I think that, for, especially for older voters, that may be the source of some of these problems. Mm. Yeah, it's just like I don't even speak the language. You know, I just don't like I'm not concerned with the same things and they're all riled up about something. I'm like, where did you even hear this? Like, <laughs> it's so strange. I mean, the myths that develop around this, like, around Soros. I, mean, I know. That's been bizarre. Like, this is a person, you know, I studied Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, my whole life. And so Soros' name was always out there because he often sponsored, you know, grants and programs and, you know, cultural exchange things. And it was like, I just thought of him as, like, kind of a, you know, philanthropist loosely associated with Eastern European human rights issues and academics. Like, not exactly like the kind of guy that attracts international attention, much less becomes some sort of like poster boy of like, you know, demonic activity for the Fox News crowd. And so it is so weird to see like what's happened over the last decade with him of all people. Um, you know, and it's frightening because a lot of it is, is rooted in anti-Semitism and, mm -hmm. you know, obviously in a rather elaborate propaganda initiative that I think reflects to some degree the Russian, um, hatred of Soros for all those pro-democracy activities, but uh, the way people buy into it, like, unthinkingly, it's just crazy. Well, it's just like the modern day, uh, what is it, the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? I mean, that's just the old thing, the old that old chestnut, you know? Um, <laughs> that that just never seems to, it always takes a new form, you know? It's always that same conspiracy. Whether people realize it or not, because I'm not even sure some people who, like, watch Fox News and repeat that thing about George Soros even know what they're really doing. But, like, the people that know, know. No, that's, that's the scary thing. You're, like, you're supposed to hate this guy. Mm -hmm. And then they just hate this guy. Mm -hmm. And they don't know why. I mean, they you know, they make up things about him. Some people think he was a Nazi. You know, there's all, I mean, it's, it's always projection. It's always, like, what they're actually up to is what they accuse their opponent of doing. But it's just sort of weird because I thought of him as a more obscure and kind of arcane figure than he has come to be so <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um but uh switching gears a little bit to something that just happened it was just revealed that ivanka trump used her personal email for government purposes and you know we have to ask if jared did too he probably did um, <laughs> we already know he did that came out like a year ago oh, okay that jared had done that and of i course see nothing was done about no it at yeah all. of course not yeah trump did it too like oh yeah you know, trump senior. Mike, Mike Pence did it in Indiana when he was governor, so, you know, it, it never ends. <laughs> you know? No, it's the whole goddamn crowd. I mean, even now, we hear in retrospect, Comey did it, too, but yeah, I mean, I, I saw that tonight, and I just feel like I know the cycle of this story. Hmm. It's going to be this sort of, a couple days of uh, outrage tinged by irony, and then people will just get back to, you know, whatever asinine story they're chasing about Nancy Pelosi or I don't know. I mean, the issue of our security, like our national security and our privacy, I don't think people are taking seriously because Kushner has been such a tremendous threat in that regard and I'm such a broken record on him, but, you know, he's basically been selling state secrets and certainly trading access 
to the White House with unbelievably uh, shady and horrible characters in order to pay off his own debt, you know, for 66th Avenue, but also, like, cozying up with people like MBS, you know, who mm-hmm. contributed to the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Like, we've now, you know, we've entered the overt murder stage of Kushner's reign in the White House, and I just can't believe this guy is still in there. It's why I don't take the Mueller probe um, that seriously in terms of it varying results, because I think if that were a serious probe, he would be out because he's a phenomenal danger uh, in terms of conflicts of interest and an unwillingness to be loyal to the American government first and foremost above his personal financial dealings or his relationships uh, with people in other countries, whether it's MBS or Netanyahu, you know, they come first. And the American government, the American people, uh, you know, if they even enter the picture at all, come second or last. And... It's very frustrating that, you know, his, uh, th- that he's still there. Because, of course, he adds nothing of value either. You know, he was never qualified for that job to begin with. Right. And this is like such blatant. If this was happening in another country thing, we'd be like, well, yeah, your kids who are totally unqualified for anything don't need to be in places of high power. And that's why we have nepotism laws. And what are you doing? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's one of the most damning things. It is one of the most frustrating things. Like, I remember when they were first announced, I was like, so this is going to be it. Like, this is going to be a dynastic kleptocracy. Like, it should be very obvious to people that Trump is intending to use his position to launder money. Like, this is a classic ploy to try to keep things in the family, to try to, you know, prevent crimes from being prosecuted. You want that circle to be small and insular and, you know, uh, a sort of bond of trust that non-family don't have. Like, it was such a damning sign. And people just, you know, they treat it like it's normal. You know, they talk about, oh, maybe Ivanka or Jared will be the new... UN ambassador. I'm still trying to figure out who has that job. I was like actually asking someone today, like, well, what happened, like, after Nikki Haley? Like, did we ever, you know, did we ever fill that position? And then that person reminded me that a year ago or so, I was like, you know, what happened after Rex Tillerson left? Like, who's our Secretary of State? Like, do we have a Secretary of State? And it's like so many of these things happen. There are so many vacancies and so much fluctuation that we never completely know who's actually managing the day-to-day of these positions. Um, but that, you know, and that's a disturbing thing in its own right because it allows the Kushners of the world uh, to kind of get, you know, a finger in everything and, uh, you know, with very little oversight or accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the, de- the there's not a deep bench of people that are are still there in positions of high power, partially because he hasn't appointed anybody to a lot of these positions. He just hasn't bothered for some reason. Um, well, I know what reason he's consolidating power, but um, yeah, but, but I mean he hasn't even nominated people. He keeps being like, oh, obstruction, but like you haven't nominated people for these posts, and there's like who is in charge really? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really frightening. You know, throughout all these crises, there's been times where we've had no ambassador to South Korea, no ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and mm-hmm. you know, um, like turnover in extremely high positions. And you know, of course, we have the controversy about Whitaker and Sessions, and you know, that's intentional. Like as you said, it's to consolidate power, and I think it's also to weaken whatever kind of. Um, stable initiatives were, were being built upon during the time that person was in office, for example, the Mueller probe uh, plodding along you know, uh, under, I guess, technically the auspices of Sessions, though I don't think he ever had any intention of letting mm-hmm. it come to its 
culmination. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, now that's uh, kind of in question as to what will happen to it. And it's a mess. I mean, it's textbook, uh, you know, kleptocratic moves. And I, I do feel like people have caught on. You know, you hear the word authoritarian or autocratic or all these kind of things, even fascists being bandied about. And it's like, well, you know, thank you for waking up to this two years after it's, uh, you know, been this fairly consolidated, at least uh, in terms of, you know, institutional decay. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. really help us now for you to wake up to that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, I guess the midterms were the one kind of bright spot in this because it did show, you know, some degree of leverage among the, pu- the public and, you know, an ability to still uh, vote in people who oppose him. So we're not all the way there yet, which is good. For sure. And I totally agreed with your take on Jeff Sessions. You know, I, and I probably feel that way more because the house was flipped. If that hadn't happened, I might've needed a well person check from, <laughs> from the authorities. Cause that was, that was just that. I really think that would have been the last, that would have been it. I don't know how you come back from that. Um, yeah. but, uh, the night was so stressful. Oh, I know. I know. I never really thought the Senate was uh, going to do that just because of how many seats were, not in play for the Republicans. Um, so, you know, but the house, if the house had not gone, I, I, yeah, that would have been 2016 part two. And I don't, yeah, (laughs) I don't need that. (laughs) But, um, anyway, yeah, but I totally agreed with your take on Jeff Sessions, uh, in that I just feel that Mueller was always in danger. Jeff Sessions had every reason to never let those findings become public because he's probably definitely implicated in it. Um, that's why he had to recuse himself in the first place. Um, two months is a long time, and this is what I wanted to get to you with uh, here because eight weeks, this guy can do so much damage uh, between now and when the Democratic uh, you know House takes effect because it's not their Congress yet, really. Um, you're right, and um, you know I hope that the Democrats are aware of this. Uh, you know I, I think many of them are. You know, and they're preparing. Certainly, those on the House Intel Committee are preparing, and I think people like Pelosi are preparing. Um, although, of course, there's this group uh, attempting to get rid of her, and you know this is not uh, a good idea or a time to do that because you know Trump and his uh, you know coterie of assholes and uh, you know crime thrills. I don't even know what to call them. Like his little uh, uh, goon squad, basically, that surrounds him at all times. They're going to pull out every trick they have. They're going to do absolutely everything possible to use these eight weeks to their advantage, to consolidate power, uh, to diminish the power of Democrats who've won. Um, I think it's going to be very chaotic. We saw this immediately, of course, after the midterms and after the Democrats won the House. Uh, the session's departure, you know, a firing or voluntary forced firing, I don't know how to <laughs> phrase it, uh, began sending things into chaos. And so, you know, it, it is very frustrating. I think that there's some good, you know, energy on the Democrat side. I think there's some momentum and kind of a return of confidence, which maybe will prompt them to, you know, be more aggressive. Like, I've, cer- I've certainly seen this in the reaction to voter suppression. People like Stacey Abrams is standing up and be like, no, like, we're not going to take this anymore, and it isn't just about me, and it isn't just about Georgia. It's about our entire system and its integrity. Like, that's the kind of attitude we need, broadly speaking, about everything that the Republicans are doing, um, you know, with the Mueller probe as well, because I think it's going to get very ugly, and just kind of watching this stuff play out in the past, uh, they have a tendency to use the holidays 
to their advantage uh, to do a lot of really shady shit, like under the wire. If you look at 2016, like the amount of stuff that happened between Thanksgiving and Christmas is absolutely uh, deranged. You know, it's, it's it, things that are being investigated by the Mueller probe now. Um, it was also around this time a year ago that you saw a lot of Republicans begin to abruptly flip to the Trump camp. You know, Lindsey Graham went from somebody who had instigated the Russia uh, collusion investigation to somebody who was cheering Trump on from the sidelines and proclaiming his innocence. And so I, I think they take advantage of the fact that the press often, uh, you know, people go on vacation, they spend time with their families, that's all understandable, uh, but they know that. And so they do a lot of dirty stuff. And I think this year is going to be uh, much more of the same. Right, right. So uh, you touched on it a little bit, but there has been an effort to get new leadership in the Democratic Party right now in the House. I believe Chuck Schumer's already been confirmed, right? He's already still back in. Yeah, see, that's where I would actually like new leadership, but of course it's not the one. <laughs> <laughs> but you think that uh, that Nancy Pelosi has done a good job? I think she's she's a skilled bureaucrat who understands the system, who's very tough, uh, who knows what policies can pass. I actually liked the dynamic between her and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Like, I feel like that was a, a you know incident that was so misrepresented and misunderstood. Um, you watched the interview um, with Ocasio Cortez and thought she sounded completely reasonable. You know, she's talking about a Green New Deal. She's talking about the urgency of it. She's saying she's representing her constituents and that she wanted to work with Pelosi to implement this. And Pelosi responded in turn that she completely supports it, that she's on board, that she welcomes protests, and that she likes working with Ocasio Cortez. And I was like, well, this is, you know, what we need. Like, we need somebody who is older and who's skilled in these bureaucratic processes, uh, you know, to sort of guide people through, you know, all the red tape and, um, you know, how, how things work in the system. And we need somebody like Ocasio-Cortez who has the energy and the commitment and, you know, certainly feels the urgency of the climate change problem much more uh, than somebody of an older generation. And so, you know, that's honestly, that's like what I want in a government is a combination of those skills and an ability of people to get along. And it was, of course, two women uh, who were getting along, and it was portrayed like a cat fight. And I was just so frustrated. And, you know, my mentions were a nightmare because I refused to take any sides. I was actually like, they're both good, uh, and it's good that they're working together. And honestly, the real thing, you know, we need to worry about is climate change. Like, that's the actual mm. problem here, not the, not the dynamic between the two of them. Mm -hmm. People are so committed to having there be this, uh, you know, breakdown from within, um, and, and it's very frustrating because I think, you know, whatever differences there are between Democrats are so small compared to the differences between, you know, anyone who's liberal or, or left or Democrat or whatever you want to call it versus the Trump administration, which really is a tyranny of the minority, you know, an exceptionally dangerous group of people. And so you need to unite on the big things, you know, climate change, corruption, the treatment of migrants, voter suppression. You know, those are all issues that I think most Americans uh, should be able to agree on, and certainly most people who describe themselves as, as uh, on the left or progressive or whatnot do agree on. Um, so it seems like a whole lot of nothing to me, like a lot of 
media hype um, that's being unfairly put on the shoulders of women who are actually trying to do their jobs. So, yeah, that's been uh, frustrating to watch that part out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But um, what about Chuck Schumer, though? What has he done that you think uh, he should be? I think he's sleazy. I mean, every, every week there's a thing with him. Like this last week, it was his daughter uh, working at Facebook and Schumer's own defense of Facebook. And I also feel like Schumer, he often bows down to Trump a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. Democrats are people who, you know, really stand up to him, you know, both with their votes and in their rhetoric. And he takes every opportunity he can to be like, oh, you know, we're willing to work with you on this infrastructure project or this or that. But, you know, please, please stop just, you know, orphaning all those little kids for us. Like, please. I mean, it's, it's awful. Like, he's so docile and he's so fearful that it's made me wonder if uh, Trump, you know, being a guy who's been invested in New York politics for his entire life, whether he has dirt on Schumer. I mean, hmm. very likely, because he has dirt on, like, everyone else, and Schumer doesn't exactly seem like a saint. And so I just wonder, you know, is this guy really the most effective person uh, that we can come up with in this position? And, you know, that doesn't mean, like, completely castigate him or you know, focus all our attention on bashing Schumer. It means we need somebody who is, you know, strong morally and uncompromising when it comes to battling this administration. And I definitely think Pelosi is that, um, you know, and so are many other Democrats. Like, I, I can think of, you know, Schumer is really kind of an exception in how much he kind of prostrates himself <laughs> to this administration, but that's not who you want in a position of uh, unique power. Mm-hmm. I mean, but do you think that, uh, going back to Pelosi, though, but, like, that's such a, like, right-wing t- uh, talking point meme, whatever, like, it's like Nancy Pelosi. It's almost like a curse word, like, you know, but, like, w- would any woman get the same treatment? Is it particularly her? Do you think if, if she was re- potentially replaced, they would just tar and feather the next person, you know, the same way? The next person will get the same treatment because hmm. of the position, because of the power of the position, and because they're a Democrat. I think that she does, um, you know, set off certain reactions in people that are very similar to the reactions that Hillary Clinton did. Mm-hmm. Often when people are asked, you know, why they dislike Pelosi, they can't really come up with a coherent answer. It's just a sort of like, oh, I've been taught to, and you thing where many people on the left are repeating talking points that actually originated from Fox News. You know, they're saying, oh, she's against healthcare, or she's against public education. I mean, just things that are, they're just simply uh, not true. And, you know, and you see sexism in the treatment of, you know, everybody, all women in Congress against um, Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, who is constantly blamed for what Al Franken actually did against Ocasio-Cortez for just having a decent-looking jacket and wanting to not, like, sleep on the street. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and I yeah. think that it's going to happen to everyone, uh, you know, regardless who they are, and I don't know. I mean, the same thing happens in journalism, and, you know, I've just gone with the attitude of, like, well, screw you, you know, like, I have to do my job, like, think what you want, I'm going to just keep doing it and say what I want, and I think, you know, women who run for office have to be tougher than that, so I would imagine they've all, you know, grown pretty thick skins at this point and are, you know, able to handle the kind of gross uh, distortions 
of their lives and beliefs, but that doesn't make it any more fun for them, I'm sure. Yeah, it's really Republicans telling on themselves when they get so hung up on, what's she wearing? How much is in her bank account? It's like, why are you picking on this one person? Like, what is it? Like, it says so much about you that this bothers you so much. And uh, I even, I wrote a column about this even, but when they had those attacks on Fox News, if like, I say attacks with uh, air quotes because it was just the most reasonable, sensible policies you could expect from a, a, a you know a, a politician on the left and they were like this is your democratic party and it was all like medicare for all uh, treating elderly people okay you know it's like it was just the most common sense things and it was like what? <laughs> is this like are you trying to is this bad like are you trying to say this is we shouldn't want this these things <laughs> it's really remarkable because that's the kind of thing that they used to you know try to frame in some sort of um, you know more covert way. It was back when the Republicans were still pretending to be the party of good Christians, you know, who, who you know looked upon their fellow brother and cared for him and encouraged him to pull himself up by his bootstraps and all that. And now it's not really about that at all. Like in even in pretense, it's just overtly like we want to hurt these other people. Mm-hmm. Us. Like mm-hmm. that's basically the entire party platform. And so when something really sensible comes along, like you know we should be able to go to the hospital and not owe, like, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. We should be able to have babies without going bankrupt. Like, old people shouldn't be suffering, and we shouldn't uh, have our planet destroyed within a couple decades' time. Like, you know, those are, are things that most people would find uh, to be reasonable propositions, and they are they're extreme to the Republicans mm-hmm. because... They show, you know, baseline concern for the fate of humanity, and the Republicans have transformed into this openly apocalyptic cult, and I do not think that they were always this way. I mean, they've been moving steadily in that direction in my lifetime, um, and there are always elements of that. But now it's, it's really the dominant theme of the party, which is, I think, why you see so many people leaving it and so many people quitting, uh, because you can't go anywhere as a society, uh, when you're operating under that kind of rubric, like you just, you can't build anything, mm-hmm. you can't help anybody, you can't create anything, and you can't envision a future. And so hopefully the Democrats, you know, will continue to try to, you know, put forth a vision, um, you know, of the future that isn't just about combating Republicans, but building something decent for all of us as a society. And, you know, they, they do try to do that, but it is hard, I think, with Trump dominating media coverage in the way he does and also, you know, putting forth all these extreme policies that they have no choice uh, but to react to. Well, yeah, I was actually thinking about that the other day. I was like, I can't really describe what the, like, overarching worldview of, like, Trumpism or whatever. I don't even, it's not like, it's just resentment. It's just like, whatever makes, whatever makes liberals sad and, like, whatever undoes something that a woman or Obama or, you know, whoever, you know, (laughs) did. And it's just like, there's no, like, positive worldview of, like, what they want it to be other than just, like, I want to make the people I don't, like, feel as bad as I feel. You know what I mean? That's that's all that's the unifying theory to people and it's just like really that's all you got? Like nothing? <laughs> well I think somewhere deep inside, you know, people have kind of internalized this zero something you know, zero sum philosophy that if something terrible is going to happen to all these other people white people, women, liberals, whatever, then the good stuff will therefore come to me. You know, it's as if there's a certain amount of good and bad in the world and it can't possibly grow or 
uh, be shared in an equitable way. So I will get mine. And in order for that to happen, these people need to be heard. But there's no coherent uh, philosophy even to that. You know, that's why people, you know, in an attempt to harm other people by voting against the policy often jeopardize it for themselves with a person. I think healthcare being the biggest example of that. Um, and it's really disturbing to see, and it often is along racial lines. I certainly mm. saw this in play during Ferguson, uh, you know, when I would interview people on both sides. And, you know, they would have this perception that if we allow police officers to be charged, um, you know, at that point, that's all we were trying for, because they weren't even charging Darren Wilson for murdering Mike Brown. Um, we be charged for killing black teenagers, then it's like it'll just upset the whole, you know, orbit. Like, all cops will be rounded up, and we'll no longer have law, and we'll have this and this, and, you know, my husband's a cop, and he'll lose his job, and it'll be all, all taken away from me. Like, I would hear these really extreme reactions, and I'm sort of like, you know, no, like, if, if your husband did nothing wrong, if he's just doing his job as an officer and not, you know, abusing people, um, then nothing will happen. And it, But it was this raw panic at the idea of anybody disadvantaged uh, structurally having rights, you know, and that somehow they have rights, you know, what their own rights or their own wel welfare will be negatively impacted automatically. And I feel like it's so deep um, mm. in the American psyche that it's, it's something that, you know, Fox and other outlets are really good at tapping into and that, um, you know, people haven't, I think, fully explored, you know, where this comes from and, and how to convince people otherwise, you know, especially in a segregated society. Mm. Well, yeah, that's such a great point. And, you know, I think the shock of all the, you know, our cell phone technology being able to show black people being murdered by the police, that always happened since, you know, all the way back to when police were just basically slave catchers for fugitive slaves back in, you know, the, uh, what was the Dred Scott decision days, you know, that was, you know, going on, you know, that, that goes all the way back to that. And, you know, now we've seen it and we can't can't deny it's happening and that's the first shock is because white people could just pretend like it wasn't happening whereas black people always knew this was happening but then this, there's a second shock when it comes when we have the video of Flando Castile doing everything right and he's still shot to death uh, and Tamir Rice and you know the list goes on but, but, but do we see these things on video and it doesn't matter like nobody gets nothing nobody goes to jail the city pays some money that the taxpayers have to pick up the tab for whoop de doo you know it's not going to prevent the next person from getting murdered. Um, it's it, yeah, it's it's just shocking and, and horrible, you know. Yeah, and it's you know it's been there for I don't know like we were kids. Like I remember being eleven or twelve and watching the Rodney King video and watching that story mm. news. Mm -hmm. You know, saying to my mom like, okay, well this means that they're going to go to jail, right? Because there's like video of it and my mom you know being naive enough to be like yeah you know this is all new this idea that people have handheld cameras and they could randomly catch this kind of incident like you know they'll, they'll be punished somehow and then of course they weren't i just remember the shock of that just knowing that you know perception matters more than objective reality and that you know these uh racial biases are in, are going to you know, uh, they're going to trump uh, the victim every time. And it was like a, you know, a very raw kind of wake-up call for me as a kid, you know, to see that. And then, of course, it's still continuing decades later uh, in the exact same fashion, which I think 
you know, the only real significant difference being this administration is overtly for uh, the police, you know, beating black people. They're for stripping people of their civil rights in a very overt way instead of the sort of, um, you know, Nixonian or Reagan-style way where they cloak it in buzzwords and stuff. I mean, they're just, you know, outright in-your-face white supremacists. And so it's finally kind of come to a head and people have to make a decision of, you know, am I going to be a person who supports this or am I going to do the right thing? And, you know, we're seeing a disturbing number of, like, you know, good Germans, you know what I mean, among mm. the population. Uh, you know, even in our media, this is not just, like, limited to people living in red states or living in rural areas. I, I, I certainly see it among the ranks of the elites as well. You know, the endless excuses and um, justifications for, you know, cozying up to these people or tolerating certain of their actions and rationalizing them. And, you know, it, it's grotesque because we have at this point, you know, I think some very clear, clear-cut cases of right and wrong and people just, you know, coming down on the side of wrong and that's mm-hmm. the way they want to do it. Yeah, and like I, I think you had a quote uh, from your book that uh, you reposted that I remember from when I read it. It was like you know where people it, it's something about like law and order and you know people are some people are considered criminal just by their nature. You know what I mean? Like it's like people that are you're just being black is you're guilty. You being poor is you're guilty. You did something wrong. You wouldn't be that. You know it's it's very it's deep. It's really really deep. So yeah, they're on trial from the day they're born. Yeah. Right. You know? Exactly. You know, I see that play out in St. Louis constantly, um, you know, and, and it's extremely frustrating. I don't think the Obama administration did enough uh, to try to fight this, especially because all these issues, you know, they rose to the fore, uh, in particular during Obama's second term, because that was when everybody had cell phone cameras, so you're seeing this new wave of videos. But they at least weren't, you know, cheering on the cops. They at least had some compassion, you know, for the families. Um, and I think especially in the Trayvon Martin case, you know, Obama spoke out strongly. And now we have a balance of power that is absolutely the other way. And when you have that kind of structural force behind it, where it's not just kind of a, a local issue or a police issue, um, you know, you're seeing how all these local and federal issues Merge. I think you also see this with, uh, you know, federal bodies like ICE and with the migrant, uh, you know, kids issue and with these camps that are being constructed. Like, it's it's moving in a really frightening direction, um, and that's another thing I worry will accelerate over the next, uh, you know, six to seven weeks. I also worry we're not getting the full story. Um, about what's going on, you know, at the border, um, and that the, the details may be released later, much in the same way they were released later with Hurricane Maria or with other atrocities that have occurred mm-hmm. in this administration. Yeah, yeah, and and that's really the whole thing with Trump. When like when he visited California, it's like he was making specifically sure to disrespect the people there, uh, you know, while he was there and blame it on them and be very dismissive and because they didn't vote for him, he's not going to care and blah blah blah. But when Texas gets, you know, hit with stuff, it's send the troops immediately, FEMA, go. But it's like you know he's telling people to rake the forests or whatever in California, and he's calling Paradise California Pleasure California, and he just doesn't care he's not even trying to hide it (laughs) It, it's contempt i mean i think some of it is i think you know trump has this very very strong fear of death and you see Hmm. in all these old interviews with him where he 
believes that the planet is nearing its end. He, you know, in the 80s and 90s, he talked a lot about nuclear annihilation, which he saw as an inevitability. And I think his philosophy was, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because I do it. You know, mm. I'm going to control it. Like, I'm so afraid of this that I need to control it. It became this kind of obsession with him. But he also just doesn't know how to react, you know, with empathy and compassion um, as a human being to anyone, even to the sort of groups who he thinks support him, like the military. He doesn't know how to issue uh, proper condolences in those situations either. Mm-hmm. Veterans. Um, I do think with California, there's a bit of, you know, oh, well, they're the enemies. Like, look at them. They're almost entirely a blue state now. And, of course, with Puerto Rico, it's even worse. Mm. weren't white people. I mean, there was one thing. I don't think it was Trump tweeting. I think somebody else was uh, running his account. But there was the, um, the duck boat tragedy in Branson. Did you hear about this? Like, Yeah, thir- like thir- 13 people died on, on one yeah, of the duck yeah, boats or whatever. Yeah, I think they were actually from Indianapolis, actually. Some of those people were. But anyway, oh, go on. Gosh, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so this family died, and, you know, it was this, this terrible thing. And immediately, uh, Trump's Twitter account send out condolences, you know, for the terrible tragedy in Branson. And I'm fairly sure that they're operating at that time under the assumption that the people who died were white. Mm-hmm. Because Branson is, is an area that tends to attract a lot of, like, white Christian tourists. I mean, I go to Branson, too. Like, I, I like it. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, it was, a, it was a black family. And I'm pretty sure that had either Trump or... I kind of suspected it was Nick Ayers running his Twitter account at that point. He's from Missouri. Um, you know, had they known it was a black family, I think they never would have issued those condolences because it's very consistent, uh, the way they treat people of different races, merit, any kind of care, uh, or compassion. And so I feel like they almost, you know, screwed up by being decent people, uh, you know, or attempting to be to that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, well, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but I did want to say before we go, Axl Rose 2020, because Axl Rose yeah. is great on policy. Uh, and I've, <laughs> I've been reading his, his public statements lately. I'm like, you know, Axl Rose is making a lot of sense these days. <laughs> great. One thing I love about Axl Rose is that generally speaking, he ignores the press. He refuses to do interviews. He spent like seven years as a recluse, which is probably how I'm going to end up. And, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> he's been coming out uh, swinging against the Trump administration from the get-go. Like, yeah. when Sessions was first nominated, uh-huh. he had the strongest condemnation of Sessions. And, mm-hmm. like, you know, good people don't work with, talk to, not meet <laughs> Sessions. He talked about Saudi Arabian policy. He uh-huh. talked about... Jared and Kushner, he went, you know, hard on Pence, which I knew would happen because, you know, Axel's from Lafayette. Uh, of course. Pence is like the nightmare preachers that he grew up with. And yeah. Again. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm like just a huge fan. So I always get like extra excited when it's like, <laughs> and anti-Trump policy statements. Oh my, God. Like, of I, my phone blows up. It's like everyone is saying, like, dude, I know. Like, follow him. Come on. You're just going to Yeah, I'm glad that, you know, maybe a new generation is, is discovering uh, Guns N' Roses, but uh, <laughs> discovering that Axel is an intelligent person. So, mm-hmm. so funny. It's like the second conversation I had on this today because somebody wrote into my podcast being like, you know, what is, what is up with Axel? <laughs> oh for sure for sure um so what are you doing for uh thanksgiving 
Oh, not a lot. Grant and my in-laws are coming down, and we're just going to eat. I just got back from a trip uh, to Miami, to the Miami Book Fair, and then I'm heading to uh, Canada, to Victoria, which is near Vancouver, so I'm sort of just enjoying this, you know, brief period of normal weather and uh, no, sort of normal and normal life before I take off again. So. Cool. How is, uh, I know you're writing another book, right? Yep. How's it going? Uh, you know, it's fine. I, it's one of those things, I mean, I'm the same way with an essay. It just, you know, takes a lot less time to write an essay where I mm. never talk about the process of it i don't do anything normally i don't really like to do an outline like i write like a weirdo and let's put it this way i'm hoping that there's not like a chinese democracy kind of incident <laughs> of course how could i forget i waited for so long for that <laughs> i had the receipt in my hand for that moment. that's when i still bought it on cd uh-huh. like 2008 i was like holy shit like it's real i'm hoping that i don't do that to people with the book but i don't think i will i think i'm, I'm more the slash kind of a person, more of a disciplined uh, <laughs> creator, so we'll see. So you're, you're more slash is snake pit, less, uh, you know, a Chinese democracy. I mean, I owned like the neurotic outsiders album, <laughs> the one that Duff did, but like, wow. I like everything. Like, okay. Every bootleg is such a freaking nerd about this, and now I've revealed too much, so mm-hmm. I just, like, let me get off this conversation before my publisher boots me off. <laughs> <laughs> but which one was better, Use You Illusion 1 or 2? Oh, 2. Okay. Definitely 2. Well, I mean, you know, what I did, of course, because I'm like a massive nerd, is I made my own best of nice. mix, where it's like all my favorite songs and it doesn't have my world on it. Um, you know, <laughs> two is the higher quality. It okay. It has to be mine. It has a strange. It has yesterday's. It's like, anyway, it has the better version of Don't Cry. Mm. Okay. I need to. Which one was uh, Civil War on? Civil War is on two. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was on one. Oh, okay. No, no, that was on two. And there's all these mm. people like, oh my God, Axel's like so smart about politics. He knows that stuff. I'm like, do you not know Civil War? Like, Yeah. That was an epic anti-war song. There. Yeah. You no, know, our hands are tied. The billion shifts from side to side. It's like, it's all there, man. Like, I called it. So, Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I need to have a whole separate podcast where I just make you talk about Guns N' Roses against your will. There is one member of Guns N' Roses who I've actually communicated with, and it was like the happiest, most exciting day because he had bought my book, and I was like, holy shit. But I can't like you know go on to him like, oh my God, I love you. You're so great. I mean, mm. It's weird, you know? So I need to talk about it to somebody. Wait, was it Buckethead? <laughs> was it Buckethead that you communicated with? It was not Buckethead. <laughs> I would totally have a conversation with Buckethead. <laughs> oh, wow. through the whole band just them all the <laughs> to be able to talk to them. But I swear I'd be too tired. It doesn't happen to me much, but I do. Oh, my God. Like, I can't from excitement. <laughs> See, this whole authoritarianism, uh, authoritarianism thing was just a front, so you would get well known enough that you could interview the people from <laughs> Guns N' Roses. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Pushing back against authoritarian figures and about paranoia and institutions rotting from within and all the other things that I mm-hmm. focused on. So, 
you know, maybe the blame is on Axel. <laughs> he should reward me by going on my show. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, I hope by the next time we talk, that's come to fruition. And, uh, yeah, it was great to talk to you again. And, uh, yeah, you too. Yeah, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. 
The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.